welcome back to the Game Dev Breakdown Podcast. My name is Todd Mitchell. If you're looking at the video screen, you can see a big black empty space over on the uh, left-hand side. That is where my friend John Scheiber usually is. He is not with us tonight. He is uh, busy and doing things, and I haven't gotten to speak with him for a couple of days. But um, I'm hoping he'll be back with us real soon. In the meantime, pause for drink. In the meantime, we got some fun stuff to talk about and some huge news. We've been super busy lately. I am doing some work with the studio here in the area, some cool VR projects. I'm super excited for some of these things to go live so I can uh, show them around. Um, they are super hush-hush at the moment, and uh, it's it's so much fun. If you've ever thought about getting into VR or um, or you're already a 3D, 3D developer and you're curious about how VR stuff is, get into it. It is the most rewarding thing I think I've ever done. It's <laughs> in terms of um, game development and software stuff. It's it's just so much fun and it's much more approachable than you're probably thinking. So I would encourage people to check it out if you have an interest in that. Um, my game Letter Taps just turned one year old. It's been in the app stores for over a year as of uh, last weekend. So to celebrate... I put the game up for free in the uh, iOS and Android stores and just told people, hey, tell your friends if you guys want to download this, you can have it. Um, I joked, I'm sure that uh, a couple of kids have been born since last year, so maybe someone can uh, put that to good use. And uh, I, it's been it's been great. People have, um, have downloaded it and become players of the game, and uh, I, I assume it's their kids playing the game, but... I'm very excited to have some new users on that, and the strategy behind that, for one thing, I just, I wanted to do something nice, because people have been really supportive since the game has come out, so I wanted to do something nice, spend a weekend where you didn't have to spend 99 cents to play the thing on your phone. But yeah, the, the strategy behind that is, if you put a game up for free for a weekend, or a few days, or, or whatever, the idea is, hopefully, people will download it, review, share with friends, create a little buzz, which should theoretically give it some traction in the app stores when you do turn the price tag back on. So uh, in my case, it's only a dollar. I haven't actually looked since since the sale ended. So, um, But I know five, six people on each store picked it up right away the first day I checked it, which was neat. We're not talking huge numbers, but just to see some action on the app again is nice. So day job stuff, and I, I bring that up because it is it is game dev related, but... I have finished a milestone for a studio in the area that I'm doing some work with, and I think everyone attached to the project is just just running on fumes right now. <laughs> Everyone's working real hard, and uh, I, I bring that up because when you get in that kind of burnout mode, I'm not in full burnout, but like I have spent some late nights. If you looked close enough, you could see my left eye like twitching, like the muscles are in my eyelids are just going nuts. Uh, too many screens, too many headsets. Today was nice because I got to send off a bunch of files to uh, a project manager, explain to him what's going on, and then sit back and, like, turn on Hulu. <laughs> I watched... What did I watch? I turned on the Bob Newhart show. Um, I'm not old enough to appreciate that show fully, but, like, when I was a little kid, they used to be on Nick at Night, and I just thought it was funny that I could stream that show. I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch the pilot episode of this, you know, 40, 50-year-old TV show. So I, I hung out with my kid, watched some super old TV, and literally played with Silly Putty for like a couple of hours. And we were just goofing around in the living room. And I, you have to get in that mode sometimes when you've just 
gone nuts and just pounding away at the keyboard day after day. Like you've got to have some simple relaxation time for sure. And that is what I've been doing. And I'm starting to feel a little better. So the big news, I will be going to GDC next month, a game developer conference, and I'm going to pull their uh, event page up on the screen so you can see. Look, John's gone. We put a nice browser in his place. Look at that. We'll, we'll bring John back, though, as soon as he's ready. So GDC is coming up in March, second half of March, and I heard from someone on behalf of Microsoft who uh, said they want podcasters at the event who might, they use the word might, uh, record at the event. I'm definitely going to go, and I'm definitely going to record, and you guys will uh, benefit from that. So expect that. Around that time, we will put out stuff daily for sure. Uh, as many people as I can talk to, as many things as I can do, things I can attend, whatever I can bring back to you, I certainly will. And I am so grateful for uh, uh, Microsoft's decision to bring me out as a guest. That was super, super cool. Everything's heading in a super positive direction. We're starting to make some friends and uh, make some contacts that I never would have expected. And opportunities are uh, popping up all the time. And we're going to take advantage of it and uh, stick around because I... I want to make sure that you guys benefit from all of that. So get excited about GDC. If you're not already, you probably are. Look at some of the stuff scrolling by on the homepage. Um, State of the industry stuff is cool, but they're they're going to do some classic game postmortems. The big one for me is, um, well, there's Sonic the Hedgehog. Obviously, that's a doozy. Everybody loves Sonic. But here it is, NBA Jam, the postmortem. We're talking what, 25 years? And they, they've got, uh, the guy's name is Mark Termell. He was like the lead developer on the game. I would love to hear him talk. I don't think I'm going to get to because of my schedule and his schedule. But holy crap, what an awesome event. And hopefully they will capture some video and put that online because God, that's awesome. Just imagine, <laughs> imagine uh, getting that opportunity to, you know, we all played these games as kids, anyone, you know, my age. Never would, would you dream that you'd get to hear somebody talk about like, yeah, here's how that came about. Here's what I learned. Here's interesting tidbits about development. They did a great one about GoldenEye a couple of years back, and you can find that for sure on YouTube. That's an awesome thing to watch. So I talk about postmortems all the time. It's super fascinating. If you're into the art and science of game development, I strongly recommend checking that out. Okay, so I'm, I am going to harp on GDC because I'm so excited that I'm going to get to go. Um, you know, I'm a dude from the Midwest and I don't work in the proper game industry. I had to sort of build my, uh, my path in myself. So to actually get an opportunity like this, it, it does mean a ton to me and I will definitely make it worth everyone's time, for sure. So be on the lookout for more GDC stuff. And we're going to chat about a few things in this episode. We got some listener feedback. And uh, this we mentioned our buddy Scott from Indiana. And he had something else for us shortly after we first spoke. And he was asking me about uh, publishers, both the publishing process for the mainstream uh, game industry and then uh, publishing for indies. Because some indies do work with publishers you hear indie and you think without a publisher, but he was interested in hearing about the publishing process, especially as it pertains to indie studios. And I thought that was a great topic because uh, it's it's complicated. It's not as easy as, you know, if you're an indie studio, you make your game, you uh, put it out there, you are your own publisher. Maybe, maybe not. The industry is kind of moving in a direction where uh, certain companies and even certain studios will take on indies and 
provide them resources to kind of to kind of set this up. I will briefly touch on the the actual process of like traditional publishing. So a traditional publisher, it's it doesn't make sense to to name names of of big uh, publishing companies because that that would just confuse things. But studios would usually get hooked up with a publisher to provide money to pay staff and to um, pay for equipment and uh, servers, all the stuff that you need to to make your game and to run your game, support your game. The way it would typically work is they would release certain amounts of money to a studio uh, when certain milestones are are delivered. Milestone being a, a software update or a certain set of features or whatever they decide on. You can decide on anything you want. Once you hit that milestone, they release that certain amount of funds. So in exchange, then usually a publisher owns some or all of, you know, the revenue for the game after it comes out. They're basically just paying you like a traditional job while you create this game. And then, you know, they just take it and do their thing. It's it's beneficial for the product because traditional publishers spend a whole lot of time. Uh, they spend a little time managing their studios underneath them and then a whole lot of time developing contacts, working on marketing, doing levels of research and data analytics and stuff that that you would really never dream of. At least a good publisher does, and you hope that's what they're doing, because that's a big part of of the allure of uh, using a traditional publisher. Now, where this gets a little interesting is indies first rose to fame by saying, we've got this team and we're going to make this game or do this project, and we're not going to use a publisher. Either that means they will just take it directly to the world and hope it it catches on, or they will make some effort to do all of the steps that a traditional publisher would do for them. So they will do their own marketing and they're, they're trying to do their own research. And it's, it is tough when you're on the outside and your primary job is development. The whole thing is publishing is supposed to let developers develop and designers design. So, you know, you don't have, a whole lot of extra staff you can allocate to uh, marketing or whatever, and then you end up kind of having to fill fill that role and do you know less development and more marketing or less design and more um, you know trying to come up with a, a long list of contacts you can call for favors or or uh, distribution help or whatever it might be. So as we move towards a model where indies are coming out and going, we're doing it by ourselves. We don't need a publisher. What we're learning is that sometimes, yes, an indie does need a publisher. So sort of this uh, this vacuum opened up for indie publishing. What we're seeing is uh, a good example of a studio that started this was uh, Double Fine. I'm going to pull this article up on screen by uh, Game Informer. It's an, what I would describe as an unusually good Game Informer article uh, about Double Fine stepping up and deciding that Though they are an indie studio, or certainly started that way, they are going to help other indie studios, quote, stay indie by helping them, like, in a publishing role, but with sort of an unconventional contract or agreement. And they don't really go into specifics because I know that they uh, pride themselves on being flexible in that area, but they are stepping in to help indies publish their games, do the correct steps because they know the process a whole lot of this is just about knowledge. Traditional publishing is mostly about money. Indie publishing is sometimes more about knowledge and resources and just having some contacts that they can step in with. And uh, Double Fine obviously knows the process of 
you know, coming up with the concept and prototyping and developing and then marketing and reaching your audience and, and all of this stuff. And so they, they know this from an actual industry perspective and they can step in and sort of help you apply this to indie development. You know, some of these concepts are familiar because for a couple of weeks we've been talking about sort of acting as your own publisher. We didn't really label it that, but that's what you would be doing if you go back a couple of episodes and plan your social media strategies and plan what to do with your website and all of this stuff. A lot of times your publisher would either have very strong opinions about that or they would allocate someone to do it for you or they would have tools for it. You can uh, you can find people who are attached to um, to indie publishers saying stuff like, I've never once had a, de- had a developer pitch me something who was doing any sort of marketing work. That's bullshit. I don't believe that. Uh, look around on Twitter, like you will find marketing, you'll find very hard work on promotion and stuff like that. That doesn't mean people are doing it smart. People are sure doing it. So I, I never want to undersell uh, indie developers. Most of them do their due diligence and they work very hard on every step that a publisher would do. However, you know, having actual industry expertise like people from Double Fine well, you can't really beat that. So the idea that certain studios are stepping up to help with that is actually pretty cool. You know, is, is there room for a different company to come in and abuse people? Yeah, that, that potential exists for sure. But, what, you know, you guys are smart. You, you know what a good contract looks like and a bad contract. Things are, are listed out in great detail, and usually it just comes down to here would be the price, here would be the ramifications if I were to sign with this publisher, and here's whether or not I should do it. So to try to directly answer Scott's question is, you know, traditional publishing is about money and, uh, you know, manufacturing when that was more of a thing. Now everything's kind of digital, but when it came to putting things on shelves and stuff, that, that'd be a great thing to hand to a publisher who might even hand that off to another company. But uh, when it comes to indie publishing, a lot of it is about knowledge and having the right people in place for when you freak out and go, oh, I'm in over my head and I don't know what I'm doing. But it's, it's all about having the right process, knowing what to do and when. It's, they, they have your back and you work out with them what that's going to be worth. An, another aspect of it is, you know, the rights you retain. So with a, a traditional publisher, like, you retained basically no rights. They determined what happened with sequels and what happened with, you know, can we port this or can we put this on sale? Can we change the price? Can we change the features? Publishers would have basically the final word because they had the power to sign the check or not sign the check. So when it, when it comes to indie publishers, it's a lot more about, hey, you know, we're both small companies, probably. And uh, how can we both benefit from this and have a good time and, and take, you know, good good products to the public? It's not right in every situation. You know, for some of my projects, I never would have dreamed of uh, signing away anything. Because <laughs> for one thing, I knew there was only so much potential for it anyway, and it was just something I wanted to do. But uh, one funny thing about this is, when, like, a, not even a year, it was two years ago, when I was just getting rolling on some of my projects, like Letter Taps, and there was a game before it that I was, I was just full speed ahead on, and things sort of changed, and I didn't get to do it, but... I was so sleep deprived. My son was less than a year old and I was still adapting to being a a parent around the clock and, you know, just adapting to uh, indie work and trying to help pay the bills by doing odd jobs and freelance stuff. And I I never got enough rest. And of course my wife didn't either. And we're just all sort of zombies. And 
I was still, I was pounding away at the keyboard all the time. And it was so funny. Like I was working so much harder than I had ever worked before at a full-time job. But so I was just kind of a zombie, wasn't thinking straight. And I went back into my email because I read an article because I was researching this for this show. And I, I recognized a guy's name who was talking about indie publishing. And I, where have I heard that guy's name? And I went back to my email and punched it in. And I realized that guy had contacted me on, it was either LinkedIn or Twitter or maybe both, several times. Like, And it wasn't like form letter stuff. It was like, hey, Todd, I was curious. You put up this tweet. I know you have this project. I'm a developer too. I was just curious to hear about it and learn what I can and network with you and stuff. It was basically a publisher meeting and I didn't even consider it. Because I saw an email from like LinkedIn. I was like, what? Leave me alone. I got... I want to develop and I want to sleep and I hate this and just leave me alone. I totally shut that guy down. I never even responded to multiple emails. <laughs> it was like embarrassing to go back and read this because the last one was like, hey buddy, I just, I hadn't heard from you and I wanted to make sure that message went through and I never to this day, like I actually need to go back and go like, I know this is stupid and way too late, but I'm really sorry about that. That was dumb. Let's talk in the future. I didn't even get to consider it because I was being stupid. So moral of the story is don't be ridiculous like me. If you get an email from these guys, hear them out. They're do they're doing the best they can. They're just doing jobs like you. And uh, they want to work in the industry like you and, and network with these people. I'm, I'm normally very good about that. This guy I totally crapped on by not even uh, responding. In my defense... I, I do get, and this isn't bragging, like anybody who's set up on LinkedIn and has certain keywords on there, you get hounded by people constantly. And I get hounded by people constantly, and I've actually shut down my LinkedIn for a second time now, and I have no regrets because I'm it's starting to finally trail off. Another side note, uh, one of our friends on Twitter, and I forget her handle, but uh, she's been having a rough time. She got laid off from her industry job, and she does not work in the United States and she has complicated rules about what she can do and what options she has to relocate and stuff. And she's doing this frantic job search. And uh, obviously LinkedIn is a big one, even though it's more buttoned down and people are going to hound you about stuff you don't really want to do. But she was talking about all these uh, uh, rec recruiter calls and she couldn't keep track of uh, who she had spoken to and things like how far they got and how interested the employer seemed and uh, whether they wanted to see anything like a portfolio or, or whatever. And I, I gave her a tip that I only got smart enough to start doing here in the last five years or so uh, out of 10 or 15 that I've had a career like this. But start a spreadsheet. If you are having a job search, you should have a big detailed spreadsheet for several reasons. And the, the kind of stuff you should have are like dates and numbers you called and people you spoke to and uh, gauge their interest 1 to 10 or 1 to 5 or however you want to do it. Like if if it, it if it's worth following up on, you know, make a note about that. Discuss the things you talked about, whatever. But get a spreadsheet going. It's not only going to help you now, but later on. I, I mentioned recruiters because they, they are uh, sort of shameless about, about what they're willing to try with you. I hear from a lot of recruiters who uh, will tell me stuff like, hey, you and I spoke about this this job a while back we spoke about this contract we talked several times you were really interested and i have determined that people were full of shit uh i hear from people who i never spoke to before and just lie their asses off trying to get me to go oh my god i am 
I am ignoring this professional uh, relationship that I was developing, much like the one I was actually ignoring. But no, they, they will straight up try to act like, you know, hey, you left me hanging when in fact you never wanted to hear from this person at all. And if you go back and, and actually keep notes about this stuff, not only are you going to see more on the ball with employers during your job search, six months later you'll be able to call somebody on it either yes we did speak and here's what happened or no, I don't know you, please leave me alone. That's just a tip for you. Uh, you can, you can uh, take that or leave that. Now on the side of unsolicited advice, I've got a quick thing there too because... And, and Scott from Indiana, thanks, buddy. Uh, thanks for the question. It's a good question. And I would have loved to get John's thoughts on this, too, because uh, we could do more than one show on the topic of publishers. But the, the ultimate answer is publishers are cool. Like, they provide options. And everything that provides options needs to be examined and needs to be considered. It's not right all the time. But use your head. Don't just blindly follow your heart. Or don't just get excited or scared. Uh, really consider what publishers have to offer. Don't don't sink too much time into it if you know you're not going to go that route. But do look into it if ever you feel like you have a project that would benefit from that help. And we'll talk another time about actually approaching people like that. Because it's a lot like the job search process also. It's, it's a matter of contacting people, gauging interest, presenting yourself the right way. Um, so I think that's a good topic for another show. Unsolicited advice for this week there's so much talk on Twitter about um, people, it's basically self-confidence. And we have discussed this, I know, but it's from a different angle this time. People are talking about, like, make sure you don't spend any time looking at what other people do on Twitter. Like, other game developers, don't look at their projects and don't play their demos. Because sometimes, you know what, you just got to consider what you're doing and what, what's important about you and what makes you great. And don't even worry about those other projects. Okay, here's... I get it. But what that sounds to me like is over on the Facebook side where everybody's like, don't look at pictures of people's dogs and ponies and kids and their Merry Christmas. That's all bullshit. Like, they don't actually have a perfect life. And so don't feel bad about yourself and that's that's nonsense for so many reasons. For one thing, yeah, people do have good lives sometimes. Some people are just happy, um, whether or not you think they should be. <laughs> people have worked hard to get what they want, and sometimes they've got it. And you should be happy for them. Like, it's a weird instinct to me to go like, well, you know, my my brother is so happy. I don't I don't like it. Like. <laughs> Make yourself happy. Like find find what's gonna what it's gonna take. Just focus that on you getting happy and you getting what you need. Back on our side, on the game development side, be be excited for people who are doing the indie thing and are doing it well. That has nothing to do with you. Get your your mind into a place where uh, you see that hey, if it's a thing that can influence you in some way, or uh, you you know you find something that maybe it may, makes something new fire in your brain. That's great. Don't, it should not discourage you for any reason. Like, if, if we've discovered anything is, there's, there's really no cap to the space for indie games. Uh, yes, you have a lot of work to do if you want to rise to the top. But there's always going to be room for you to try. So someone else succeeding is not uh, you failing. That, those things are not connected. And what I would say is don't ignore those things, but train yourself to look at that and not get discouraged. And you can do that. You can look at that and go like, man, that's really cool. I'm so excited about that. 
uh, or uh, or just go like, yeah, that that looks like a great game. I got to get back to work on my game. Let it remind you to get back to work because again, the the networking thing is great, the social media thing is great, but not if it has this kind of impact on you. So let's all just uh, focus on seeing other people's work and going, oh man, great, great job, and uh, you know, you'll see mine soon, and you'll you'll think great job. Awesome. No, no problem. Let's, let's get more in that mindset and not the, uh, that looks good. So I feel bad. Doesn't make sense. Let me make a quick book recommendation again, along the lines of, um, traditional publishers and stuff. Gamers at Work is such a good book. And if you're ever curious about the inner workings of publishers, this book is a chance for you to read the words. Uh, and I've, I've recommended this before. It's one of my favorite books. Uh, you can look at Trip Hawkins, for example, who founded Electronic Arts, uh, he they he talks all kinds of stuff about uh, how electronic arts used to work and how it works now and what he does now. All of these uh, old school developers, Nolan Bushnell from Atari, um, Wild Bill Steely, who worked as I think he sort of worked as a publisher for Sid Meier. That's uh, why you should recognize his name. This book has really really great interviews with people who totally built the game industry. So. I would consider this required reading. I've read it more than once. And the author's a really nice guy. He'll interact with you on Twitter if you hit him up or uh, or whatever. So look at Gamers at Work, stories behind the games people play. And uh, if you enjoy that, there's another follow-up book afterwards called Online Gamers at Work. And I think that's pretty good too. One other thing that I wanted to talk about was um, there was a great game jam that just ended today sorry i should have talked about this last week didn't get to record um it was called the movie game jam so a lot of people i know were really psyched about this the idea is to create a game inspired by your favorite movie scene and i think that's so awesome the idea is that tie-in games have had a, a dicey history you know um some games are better than others now some spider-man games were phenomenal, and I've said that before, but I love those Spider-Man games. Some Spider-Man games are very bad, so I guess that proves the point. The idea here is to take one scene and to make a game out of it, and otherwise it was pretty wide open. I think there was a team cap of four, but this uh, this ran since uh, February 2nd and just closed today. So uh, a couple of my friends made really great games for this. Our buddy Paul Nicholas, who's been on the show made a great uh, game inspired by Kill Bill for the Pico 8 system, so you can check that out. I played it, it was cool. A, a buddy of mine who goes by Rhombus on uh, Twitter, <laughs> this this tells the story about uh, how I pick my friends. These two guys for sure picked the, sa- the same movies that I would go to. Kill Bill a little less so, but my buddy who goes by Rhombus on Twitter uh, picked The Truman Show. And that I I was floored because that would have been one of the first ones I went to, and I would never have dreamed anyone else on Earth would think to make a game based on the Truman Show. And he did, and it was really clever. And that was another good one. And I think he called it Terman to sort of get off the <laughs> off the actual uh, movie title. But this was such a neat activity, and I was hoping John was going to be with us this week because <laughs> I I would love to hear what kind of ideas he would have for this game jam. And uh, I, I, we would bounce stuff back and forth. I could see making a great uh, game based on Cool Runnings, uh, bobsledding, something, <laughs> something like that. Um, 
or or some stupid holiday movie I liked as a kid, like uh, Jingle All the Way, would be a good one. You know, and then we we could have uh, picked one, and then maybe had a night where we streamed like a development session to try to prototype it. Maybe we'll still do something like that. I think that'd be a lot of fun. But yeah, movie game jam, and this this person said he he and or she I don't know who did this has another one coming up. Oh. Hosting a jam in March called Made a Game Jam, where you create a game about games. And I actually have been thinking about a game like that for a long time. And maybe it would sort of go against the spirit of the game jam to tackle that during that event. But I will talk about that sometime in the very near future and tell you guys what that would be. That's actually about all we're going to get into tonight. Um, I'm going to try not to miss any more weeks, especially now that we've got friends in awesome places and we're starting to do very cool things. So if you guys enjoy what we do here on the Game Dev Breakdown podcast, leave us a rating review if you get to it on iTunes, Google Play. Uh, Player FM has been really good to us. We're on Stitcher Radio. We're like everywhere you can think of to find a podcast. We are there. Just subscribe and follow along. Reach out to us on social media. We love hearing from you guys. Good wishes to our buddy John Scheiber, and I'm sure he'll be back as soon as he can. We'll plan on talking to you next week. Thanks, everybody. Have a good one.